We're reading in Genesis uh, chapter 3, and we read the opening 13 verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, but also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. I'm sure you'll agree we are bombarded from all sides by words. It's sometimes almost overwhelming. And when we take into account uh, the internet and social media, perhaps there are times when you just feel overwhelmed by the volume of words that come at you from all sides. The amount of information that we can't really absorb, much less weigh it up and evaluate it. If you're searching for something on Google, for example, and you'll get perhaps thousands of responses, what do you do with them? Where do you begin to handle that amount of information? And, you know, from all sides, we're getting words that are offering information, products to buy, solutions to every problem you can think of and problems you never thought of, Uh, Advice on lifestyle, how to stay healthy, how to lose weight, how to do all sorts uh, of tremendously useful things. Whatever you want to know, somewhere you will be able to find words that claim your attention, demand that you listen to them. And in that tide of words, of course there's a big question, which ones are worth listening to. Which words are worth our attention? There is so much rubbish available. How do you find what is profitable, uh, what is useful, what is true? Even in public life, well, we were accustomed to talk about spin not so long ago. Now it's false news, but whatever label you put on it, it's the same question. What words can you trust What should you believe? Even with regard uh, to coronavirus, there is so much misinformation abroad and so many uh, wild and unfounded theories. 
So what should we listen to? What should we believe? A lot of what is out there, of course, challenges our Christian faith and our Christian values. What should we believe? To what should we give our attention and what should we simply ignore? Generally, of course, the first question to be asking is, do you trust the source of those words? Is it coming from a trustworthy source? And that's not a new challenge. You might think this is a modern problem. But we find that issue, whom do you trust? Right back at the very beginning of human history. We read of it there in Genesis chapter 3. I want to look for a short time today at the opening verse of Genesis 3 and those words of the serpent. Did God really say? Did God really say? Because here is a challenge that is ancient and it's a challenge that is also extremely contemporary. Did God really say? And there are several things uh, we need to think about as we consider this verse. And the first is the temptation we encounter. The temptation we encounter. Well, Genesis 3 provides for us a historical record of Satan's temptation of our first parents. When we open our Bibles and we read the first chapters, we are dealing with history. The Bible everywhere assumes the historicity of these events. What happens here in the Garden of Eden concerns two individual human beings, two historical figures. If you had been standing in the Garden of Eden, you would have heard what was said. So this is history, and the Bible everywhere assumes that if this isn't history, if this is myth or legend or make-believe, then the Lord Jesus Christ was mistaken, and the New Testament writers were mistaken. They accepted the historicity of this account. Now, of course, Adam's actions in the Garden of Eden were performed as the head of the human race. Adam was in covenant with God. He had that unique, special status so that whatever Adam did implicated the whole of the human race, all of us. The consequences of Adam's action affect us. So Adam was a historical individual and he was a representative of the human race. But in addition, we see that Satan Uh, is using a method to attack God's people that he keeps using. In a sense, Satan's not tremendously original. He keeps using the same methods over and over, usually because, of course, they've been successful. And we see in Genesis 3 how Satan often attacks the Lord's people down through history. And so we can learn from this account not only an explanation for why the human race is the way it is, that we're sinners, 
But also we can learn how the enemy often attacks us today. So how does Satan tempt Eve and through her Adam? And how does he tempt us? Well, he begins with a question. A question that's designed to provoke questions in the mind of Eve. Did God really say? There isn't a word in the original for really. If you go back to the Hebrew, if you want to do that, you'll see there isn't a word for really, but it's implied there. It's the tone of what Satan is saying. Did God really say that? Now, he's not questioning the fact that God spoke those words, you mustn't eat of that tree. Satan knew that God said it. Eve knew that God said it. Adam knew. That's not the point. The point isn't, was this a fact about what God said. The point is that Satan is provoking Eve to evaluate what God said, to weigh it up critically, to think about it. God said these words, well, is his prohibition reasonable? Is it fair? That's what Satan is doing, to stir Eve to think critically about what God said. To weigh it up herself, not simply to submit to God's word, but to test it. Is it fair? Is it reasonable? Is this word from God to be trusted? That takes us back to where we started. Do you trust the God who said this? And you see in Eve's mind the doubts are being stirred. Because when she repeats to Satan what God said, she exaggerates the prohibition. Verse 3, you mustn't touch it. It's not only you're not to eat, but you're not to touch it. There's no indication anywhere in Genesis that God said you can't touch it. But you see, he's making it a bit tighter, a bit more restrictive. It's easier to think, well, that's not reasonable. You can't even touch it. That's not fair. And so Eve is starting uh, to have her doubts and her questions about God's word. So Satan stirs questions in her mind. And then he progresses to an outright denial of the truthfulness of God's word. He comes out of the shadow, in a sense, and blatantly denies the truthfulness of the word You shall not surely die. It's not true. And of course, when Satan questions the truthfulness of God's word, he's also questioning the truthfulness of God. And that's exactly now what he's doing. Is the God who gave this word, don't eat from the tree or you'll die, is he to be trusted? Or is he restricting your freedom? Is he being unreasonable? Is he being unfair to you? And already, of course, Eve is starting to have her doubts. And now there's the blunt question, does she trust God? Does she believe his word? And often we face the same basic temptation Do we trust the word 
of God. This isn't just something from ancient history, thousands of years ago. This is contemporary. This is a challenge we all face. We all have to reckon with. Do we trust the word of God? And of course, behind that, the bigger question, do we trust God? Of course, the enemy uses all kinds of ways of shaking our confidence in God's word. We read our Bibles and we read what it teaches, what it tells us to believe, how it tells us to live. Satan is is busy trying to shake our confidence, to, to raise doubts in our mind about God and about his word. Maybe what the Bible says goes against what we desire, what we would like. And you have it here, Eve, in verse 6. The tree looked good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. I'd like to try that. But God says I mustn't. And sometimes what God's word says goes against what we would like and what's attractive to us. That can shake our confidence. Maybe what we read in the Bible is hard to understand. And of course there are parts of scripture that are difficult to understand. Our capacities are very limited and we're sinful. And there's things you read and I don't understand that. I don't know what that means. And again, maybe your confidence is shaken. What the Bible teaches too can be questioned by experts, the scientists who say, who? with any intelligence, would believe what the Bible says about creation. Or perhaps the philosophers who say, who nowadays would ever have any confidence in the moral teaching of the Bible, especially the Old Testament? And even theologians, professing Christians, you'll hear in the media questioning God's word. There was one New Testament expert beginning of last century, took the line, well, you can't expect people who use electric light to believe the Bible's view of the world with heaven up there and hell down there. You can't expect educated people to do that. And all around us you hear voices or you read them. People saying the same thing and professing Christian theologians and churchmen. We can't really believe these things. Now it is, and maybe your confidence is shaken. It's questioned by the experts, or it's mocked by the world around us, isn't it? Especially the moral teaching of God's word. The values as Christians that we hold, to many people, are absolutely baffling. Why would people behave in this way? Why would people believe these moral values nowadays? We've left them behind in the Victorian age. And that can shake our confidence. How often do you hear that Christians must get in step with the world they're living in? You even hear church leaders saying that the church must get in step with the world. Of course, if the world happens to be marching towards the edge of a cliff, in step with the world is the one place you do not want to be. But we hear these things. And perhaps you begin to wonder, maybe, maybe... 
parts of the Bible aren't to be trusted. Maybe we do need to move on. Maybe we can't really believe what we find in this book. The temptation we encounter. Do you wrestle with that sometimes? Do you find your your confidence in the word of God shaken by the things you read, the things you hear, what people say to you? You begin to wonder, is, is it right what the Bible says? Things that God seems to require of us, are they fair? Are they reasonable? And we can find ourselves questioning in the way that Eve did. The temptation we encounter. But that leads us on then in the second place to think of the choice we must make. The choice we must make. Because the temptation that we have in Genesis 3 really illustrates the challenge that we are constantly facing, you and I today. Because the word of God and the word of Satan are presenting to us two rival interpretations of reality, two explanations of the way the world is and the way we are. You have the word of God and you have the word of Satan. Two rival interpretations. And the issue here in Genesis 3 is far deeper than will they eat a piece of fruit or not? That's simply a token, an outward sign of what's going on in their hearts and minds. Their, Their whole lives are involved in this contest. And it's the same with us. Two rival explanations of the world of ourselves. Which interpretation are we going to believe and act upon? Whose word will we accept as authoritative? Will it be what God says? Or what all these other voices say? Voices that have no regard for God and God's word. And this is bigger than any single issue that we have to deal with. Any one question we have to struggle with. Here are two words that offer an explanation of the world and of life. Which of them are we going to submit to? Because it's not only a matter of what you believe in your mind. It's a matter of how you live your life. Which word will we listen to? That was the challenge Eve faced. The word of God or the word of the serpent? And for us, the same question, will we submit to God's word or to the voices of unbelief that we hear all around us? On the one hand, we've got the word of the creator himself, the God who made us. A word that he's given in his authoritative revelation in scripture. And here we have the perfect ultimate standard, a standard for how do we know anything? How can we say anything is true and other things are false? What do you measure it by? Here is the measuring rod. Here is the standard, what we believe about God, about ourselves, about why we are in this world. 
we have here the standard for understanding who we are. And isn't that one of the great debates today, all around you hear it, where you can decide to be whoever you want. You can self-identify as anything. And so the question of who am I, what am I, is a huge question. Where are you going to get the answers to that? Here's the word of the creator who made you with his authority. And here is the perfect standard for how to live your life. In all the the conflicts that we hear about that you can't escape from, is this right? Is that wrong? How should we live our lives? Here's the standard the creator himself gives us. It's the maker's instructions. And if you buy some new piece of equipment, if you have any sense, unless you're a man, you'll read the instructions because the maker knows how it works. And if we want to know how, as human beings, we work, how we're to live, here are the maker's instructions. So that's one word, the word of the creator. But then in opposition to that, we've got the word of the rebel, of Satan, who refused his glorious God-given position as an angel at the beginning who opposes God and God's truth in every way he can do it. Remember what Jesus said about Satan? John eight forty four. He is a liar and the father of lies. And at every point, Satan offers a rival interpretation of reality. What God says is good, he says is bad. What God says is sin, Satan says is freeing, liberating, good. And the two are in opposition. There is a battle going on. And we have to make the choice, which will we listen to? Which voice, which word will we attend to? You see, what is happening here in the Garden of Eden? Human beings are trying to occupy the place of God. That's the basic sin of Adam and Eve. They put themselves in God's place. Instead of submitting to the Creator and to the Creator's word, Adam and Eve are setting themselves up as judges. They're saying, I want to decide what's true and false. I want to decide what's good for me and what's bad for me. I want to decide if eating from that tree would be a good thing. Now, God says it's bad, but the serpent says it's good. I'm going to decide. They're putting themselves in God's place as the judges of truth, as judges sitting, they believe, over the word of God. And the result will always be a disaster. It is in Eden, and it always is. When we set ourselves over God's word, when we make ourselves judges of God's word, we're on the road to disaster. You see it in Eden. We see it all around us. Rather than accepting the position God has given us as creatures who listen to his word and then obey, we make ourselves judges. And that's the root of sin. Because the root of sin in the Garden of Eden is Adam and Eve try to put themselves in God's place. Instead of submitting to his word, 
They want to sit as judges. And God won't have it. And you see the immediate consequence. They end up trying to hide behind a tree from God. Ludicrous. In a sense it's laughable. But sin is ludicrous. And in a sense sin is laughable. To think we can put ourselves above God's word. And prosper. So there's the temptation. There's the choice. But finally... There's the example we're to follow. The example we're to follow. And the example's a person. Not here in Eden explicitly, but it's the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, actually, I believe, and many theologians believe, God walking in the Garden of Eden was the Son of God because he is always the channel of God's communication with his people. And it's the Son of God, I believe, who was walking in the garden and speaking to Adam and Eve. But of course, it's when Christ takes our human nature, comes into this world in the incarnation, there you see the perfect example of how we are to receive God's word and what we're to do with it. Yes, of course, in Christ's saving work, he's unique. We don't repeat that. But in his human nature, in his life on earth, he is our example of godly living. We read in 1 John 1, 6, whoever claims to live in God must walk as Jesus did. And how did Jesus walk? How did he live? It was with a fundamental commitment to obedience to the word of God. Your word is truth, Jesus says in John 17. And in every part of life, he was directed by God's word. I've come to do your will, the words we have in Hebrews 10, 7. So Jesus is our example. You see it in his response to the temptations. Every time the devil came to Jesus, you have it in Matthew 4. Turn the stones into bread. Throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Bow down to me. What was Jesus' answer? Every time. It stands written. The abiding authority of God's word governed the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I are to be imitators of Christ. We are to walk as Jesus walked. So we are to be those who submit every part of life to God's word. All our living, all our thinking, joyful, loving Submission to God's word. Placing ourselves under the word. Not sitting over it as a judge. Under God's word. That's the life you and I were created for. As we live in that way by God's grace, we fulfill the purpose for being in this world. And so there's the choice you and I face every day in all sorts of ways. Which word will we listen to? The word of God? The absolute perfect standard for what you believe and how you live? Or the words of all these other voices that don't submit to God? Voices that in the end are the voice of the serpent. Did God 
really say? Do you find yourself sometimes thinking those thoughts? Questions of, is this true? Is this how I should live? We're called to be like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Willingly, joyfully submitting to his Father's word. And that's how you and I are to live in a world that isn't listening to God by and large. We are listening to the word of truth, the word of the Creator, the word that guides us in the paths of righteousness and on to glory. May we face the temptation by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit and commit ourselves, like our Saviour, wholeheartedly to the word of the Lord.